Lord God, thank you that we can gather here as your people today. Um, Lord, we thank you for a bit of sunshine and rain over the last few days. Um, And Lord, just the many mercies you have for us uh, here in this place. Um, We live in a beautiful place and we have this wonderful hall to meet as your people um, and to read your word openly and talk about it. Um, And we thank you for that wonderful privilege. Um, Help us now as we come to your word, as we... I hear what it has to say, and as I share from it, um, would you guide my words? Um, would you open all of our hearts uh, to hear your word and be shaped and changed by it today? And we pray all this in Jesus' awesome name. Amen. Well, last week, if you were with us, um, we were looking at uh, the start and the middle part of Matthew 17. Um, and today we have a big chunk to get through, as you can see. I've already had a few comments from a few people looking at my outline, going, are we going to be here all night? Um, I promise you I won't keep you all night. We'll try to get through it quickly. Um, But last week we saw this great vision of the King Jesus. Uh, We saw him transfigured and we saw him in all his might and glory. And we were challenged to not have little faith. Uh, I encourage us all to have big faith uh, in this coming year, Um, but a big faith that focused on a big Jesus. So in light of last week and that big Jesus that we saw last week, this week we continue in Matthew. And at the start of our um, reading there, as you would have heard just read, we see that Jesus and his disciples have arrived in Capernaum. Now I've got some photos for you to help give us a bit of an idea of where we are. So this is Capernaum. Um, You can actually type in Capernaum in Google Maps and it will show you where it is. Um, You can see some ruins of an old synagogue there. But this is Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. So if we go to the next photo, you can see from the air, this is the Sea of Galilee. And if you see closely through the green parts, that's the Jordan River flowing down south of the Sea of Galilee. So I show you these because this is where the first kind of 18 chapters of Matthew and most of Jesus' ministry was set around this sea, around the Sea of Galilee. His hometown of Nazareth Nazareth wasn't too far away from here. Uh, Often in Matthew we hear him sailing across this lake. Uh, At one stage he walks across this lake. Um, And all the apostles that Jesus gathers, his first followers, um, come from this area, the area of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. And if we go to the next photo, you'll see a bit of a map there, and we'll see that Galilee is right up in the north. In the north of Israel is where Galilee is, and you can see the the sea there. And if you have your Bibles with you, you'll see in chapter 19, the next chapter after our chapter today, we see that when Jesus had finished saying these things, the thing he's just said, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea. So after this chapter, Jesus leaves Galilee. The first 18 chapters of Matthew, he has been in and around Galilee. After this chapter, he leaves Galilee, heads down to Judea, eventually to Jerusalem. And without spoiling it too much, We know what happens there. He dies and eventually is risen again. So Jesus has spent most of his time in that area in Galilee. You can take that photo down now. He spent almost all of his ministry on earth in Galilee, north of Judea. And in this passage today, Matthew 18, we kind of have Jesus' last words to this group of people that he has been gathering, ministering to, preaching to in Galilee. So what has his mission been? Why would Jesus spend so much time outside of Judea, outside of Jerusalem, kind of the home of Jewish culture and religion? What has he been doing up in Galilee? 
Well, I think Jesus has been building for himself a kingdom community. See, in Matthew 4, we kind of get a summary. Matthew gives us a summary of what Jesus is about to do for the next 14 or so chapters. In Matthew 4, Jesus gives the, uh, Matthew gives this summary. He says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So Jesus has been outside of the centre of Jewish tradition and culture and religion and he's been building this kingdom community, these disciples, these followers who are going to follow him and trust in him. After this chapter, he goes to Jerusalem. Eventually he will die there, but he builds another kingdom community for himself in Jerusalem and in Judea. And then as we read on throughout the New Testament into Acts and the rest of the New Testament, we see this kingdom community doesn't stay in Galilee or in Judea or Jerusalem or even in the Middle East. It starts to grow. Paul goes and ministers to different places in Asia. And by God's grace, and thank God for his grace to us, that kingdom community has gone to the ends of the world. It's gone even as far as Bonnie Hills and Lake Adai. So here at Salt, we are a part of the kingdom community that Jesus started building back in Matthew 18. And as far as distance from Galilee, we're pretty close to the ends of the earth. In the Bible, Jesus was building this kingdom community and he continues to build that community today. We are a part of that wonderful kingdom community that Jesus was building. So as we look at Matthew 18 today, uh, Jesus has a lot to say. There is a lot to get through here. I will try to be quick. But it's going to be important for us to think about what we learn here about this kingdom community. What makes it distinct? What does Jesus say it should look like? How people should behave and act and relate to one another? There's a lot that Jesus says uh, in these verses. And I've tried to give you some headings to try to orient you to where we're going uh, in your outlines, if you've got them there. Um, And I've broken it up into some chunks so we can try to have some manageable chunks to look at tonight. Um, So if you look at your outline there, we'll start on the first one. It's always a good place to start. And we see that at the end of chapter 17, the first thing we learn about this kingdom community that Jesus is building is that there is a time for choosing peace. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the end of chapter 17, uh, Jesus comes up against this cultural Uh, thing that's happening at the time, this temple tax that's being collected. And the question is, how is Jesus going to respond in this setting? Often in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus comes up against a cultural issue of the time and often he responds by causing offence. Sometimes riots kick up with what he says. He often pushes against culture. He's He's a bit of a dynamic character like that in Matthew. So we get this temple tax in Matthew 17 from verse 24 and we think, what is Jesus going to do here? Is he going to get those Jews again? But then we see something different. If you look at Jesus' response uh, after the, the person who comes to collect the tax talks to Peter, Peter comes into the house and then in verse 25 we read, Jesus says this to Peter, what do you think, Simon? That is Peter, he asked. From who do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. 
then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. So Jesus has made clear that he shouldn't have to pay this temple tax. We've just seen that he has been transfigured to be revealed as the king of the world, God himself. Why would God himself pay a tax to himself? Surely Jesus is exempt. Surely this is Jesus' chance to push against the culture again and teach these Jews a lesson. But we read in verse 27, Jesus doesn't do that. He says to Peter, But so that we may not cause offence, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. This is a weird kind of miracle that Jesus, a weird way for him to pay the tax. It's this odd miracle where he goes and catches a fish. We don't actually, we don't actually get a re- recording of the miracle happening or Peter going and doing it, and it was amazing. It's clear that it's, not, it's kind of this weird offhanded way to pay the tax because the main point is that Jesus here doesn't want to cause offence. But why? Because he's caused offence many times in the past. Well, it would seem that there's a time for choosing peace instead of offence. See, Jesus has every right not to pay the tax. He could stand and say, no, I am the king's son, I will not pay that tax, but he chooses not to cause offence. And the words there, cause offence, are the same words that are used later and translated as cause to stumble uh, in Matthew 18. It's clear that Jesus is doing this for the sake of other people. Uh, He doesn't want to cause offence. He's choosing peace this time for the sake of not making other people who maybe do need to pay the tax. He doesn't want them to stumble in their faith. Now, don't get me wrong, there are definitely times when it's good to cause offence. Jesus has definitely shown that in Matthew's Gospel. There's times when he stands up for what is right, and that's good. We live in a society that is big on the, at the moment on what is right, individual rights, human rights, and a lot of that's really good. But there's also times when it can be helpful to put aside what you might think is right for the sake of other people. And that's especially true in a new kingdom community that Jesus is built in, the same kingdom community we have here at Salt. See, church isn't a place where you should come to be right all the time. I've known plenty of Christians who love to cause offence, to take any opportunity to, to flare up and say what they believe. Now that's good in some instances, but sometimes it's not if it causes other people to struggle or to stumble. There's this great quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, from his book, Life Together. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, the person who loves their own dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. See, what he's saying is if you come to church with your own ideas about how everything should be and you know you're right and you stick by it, you're going to destroy the community that you're a part of. But if you come with an attitude of service, of willingness to sometimes choose peace over conflict, to love others, to serve others, well, that's what's going to build a community and that's the attitude that's going to build the kingdom community Jesus is building here in Matthew. So I encourage us to think about how we can be a people who at times choose peace 
when maybe we know we're right, but for the sake of others, we choose to be peaceful. So that's the first thing uh, that we see in this passage about this new kingdom community that Jesus is building. The second is that a kingdom community is not about status. In 18, 1 to 5, uh, we see that the disciples, uh, they want to know about the sort of hierarchy that might exist in this new community that Jesus is building. The disciples come to Jesus and say, who is then going to be the greatest in this new kingdom that you're building, Jesus? So the disciples lived in a culture where status was all, the, it, was, it was the be all and end all. What robes you wore, who you, who you related to, where you sat at the table. It was all about the status you had, who was great, who was not so great. And I think we live in a pretty similar culture, don't we? We're surrounded by status symbols. Designer brands to show how much money you have, expensive cars to show the sort of lifestyle you live. I think in Christian communities, we're not immune to this either. I was on a camp with some youth a couple of months ago, and we were lying in bed, getting ready for bed. The kids started talking about the different apps and things they used on their phone, fair enough, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. And then they started talking about the Bible app that they had on their phone, and I thought, good on these kids talking about the Bible app. What good Christian kids. And then they started comparing who had the best daily Bible streak on their apps. How many do you have? Oh, I have 150 days. Ah, I've got 235. And then they started talking about how many friends they had on the Bible app. I don't even know the Bible app had friends, but it does. Something that's meant to be there to keep you accountable, to encourage one another, became this status symbol. I've got 63 friends and a 300-day Bible reading streak on the Bible app. Aren't I good? I just thought to myself, we're obsessed as people with this status, with this, we want something to rank ourselves. How do I sit in the society that I live in? Do I, am I at the top? Am I at the bottom? And this is what the disciples want. They want some sort of hierarchy, some sort of system where they can go, what's great in this new kingdom? What can I do, Jesus, to be great in this new kingdom? But what Jesus does is he brings a child into the room. In verse 2, he calls a little child in and he places them among them. And he says these words, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice how Jesus has shifted the focus a bit there. He's not talking about greatness so much anymore, but he's focusing on getting into the kingdom. The disciples shouldn't be worrying about what's going to be the greatest thing to be in the kingdom, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They should be focused solely on just getting into this new kingdom that Jesus is building. And Jesus does talk about true greatness in verse 4, and he says to be great is to take a lowly position like this child. Now some have thought this might be being humble, uh, being servant-hearted, but I don't know about parents out there, I don't know if that's how you would describe your children humble and servant-hearted. Um, often children are the complete opposite of that, aren't they? But in Jesus' society, children, the status they had was low. There was no real hierarchy for kids. They were at the bottom. The parents could squabble and, and debate about who was great as much as they liked, but the children were at the bottom. And Jesus is saying, if you want to get into the kingdom, you have to give up the status that you aspire to and take a lowly position. 
Now, to be fair, status and influence can be okay things to have. Um, you could argue that I have some sort of status standing up here today preaching. Um, it's okay to find yourself in a position of influence or to have status. But what's clear here is that the attitude of seeking status, seeking influence, is the wrong attitude to have in this new kingdom Jesus is building. What Jesus is focusing on is getting into the kingdom. Because once you're in the kingdom, once you have the status of being a child of God in the kingdom of God, there should be no other status to achieve. Here's an example. I was a pretty good golfer back in my day. As a young junior, there was a few other juniors at my... I don't know why you laugh. I was. I'll play with you. I'll prove it. But as a junior, there was about three or four other juniors in my club and there was quite a competition for who was the best junior at our club. It would come down to how many tournaments you've won, how many birdies did you make that day. There was this constant back and forth of, I reckon he's probably the best at the moment. I reckon I'm probably the best at the moment. That was until one faithful day when I shot the course record. And they took my scorecard, framed it, put it up in the clubhouse, and I was the course record holder. At that point, it didn't matter about the results during the week or how many tournaments anyone had won because I had the record. I was the course record holder and still am to this day. <laughs> Thank you. But see, that status that I have at the club, that status that allows me to not worry about seeking status as a good golfer anymore, the problem with that is that could be taken away from me too. Someone could come along and shoot a better score and then I wouldn't be the course record holder anymore. But see, if you're in the kingdom of God, if you have the status of being a child of God in his kingdom, that's a status you can never, ever lose. No one can take that from you. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, stop worrying about gaining status for yourself. Look at the status you have if you're in my kingdom. You can be as low as this child. You don't need to seek your own status because I've given you all the status you could ever ever achieve. So we don't need to focus on status in this new kingdom because we've been given the greatest status we could ever have. So if we don't have to worry about status, what do we worry about? Well, I think Jesus makes that pretty clear in the next section from verse 6. We need to be careful about stumbling, Jesus says. Now, Jesus talks a lot about stumbling over and over again. He mentions the carefulness about stumbling in these few verses. So what's he referring to when he talks about stumbling? Well, put simply, I think it just means sin. Be careful of sin. Some translations like the ESV simply write it as sin. Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't worry about status, but be careful about your sin. And Jesus has already spoken about sin in very similar words in the Sermon on the Mount a few chapters ago. You remember the language of cutting off an arm or gouging out an eye. It's, oh, it's this graphic language about getting rid of your sin and dealing with your sin. So here, just before he's about to leave this group of disciples, he reminds them again to be careful about their sin. And in, and in this part of um, God's word, uh, in this time when Jesus tells his disciples about this, he focuses on how he, the sin of how your sin impacts other people around you. If you read in verse 6, 
Jesus said, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. These are serious, serious warnings from Jesus about our sin and leading others to sin. And it's a strong warning because the danger of sin is serious. Jesus is trying to make that clear. Sin by itself in isolation can cause damage, but sin in a community can cause great damage. I've seen some of the damage my own sin can do to others around me and the way that I've lived, the decisions that I've made. And I'm sure a lot of you would feel the same way. You've seen the damage your sin can do, not just to yourself, but to those around you. And I'm sure we've all heard of churches and even whole ministries that have been derailed because of one person's sin. Ravi Zacharias is a terrible example. So the warning here that Jesus is saying is, be careful about your sin. Be careful that you don't make anyone else stumble because of your sin. You need to deal with your sin. You need to care for others by dealing with your own sin. And he continues this theme of caring for others into the next section when he talks about the parable of the wandering sheep. In verse 10 we read, See that you don't despise one of these little ones, the little ones again. For I tell you that there are angels in heaven always see the face of, their, of my Father in heaven. So it's the little ones here and it was the little ones before that we need to be careful not to cause to stumble or to despise. So who are the little ones here? Is he still just talking about children? I don't think so. I think he's made clear that he says in verse 6, anyone who causes one of these little ones to stumble, those who believe in me, that the little ones are his disciples. The ones that were meant to be like little children, he's now talking about. Don't despise little ones because they have a privileged relationship with God in my kingdom. And then Jesus goes on to tell the famous parable of the sheep that wanders off and the good shepherd that leaves the 99 to find the one. And we know he's talking about God here. But the point is, you should feel the same way about all the sheep in this kingdom. Don't despise them by allowing them to wander off and get lost. Go after the one. And the application of this idea comes directly after this when he starts talking about dealing with sin in the church. How are we going to stop people wandering off in this kingdom? Well, we're going to deal with sin. We've already been warned about the danger of sin. And here Jesus is saying we need to be willing to deal with it in our communities. In his community of the followers of Jesus that he is creating, people need to be willing to deal with sin. And notice here that in these verses, the emphasis is to try to win somebody over. The point here isn't just to point out someone's sin, but to win them back to God out of their sin. There's a duty of care that's taking place here. It's not just about dibby-dobbing people in for their sin. If we read in verse 15, it says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. See, winning them over is the best result that can be found here. That's what we're aiming for when we try to deal with sin in the church and in this new community Jesus is building. But at the end of this, Jesus talks about 
doing it one-to-one, -one, then maybe bringing a couple of other people in. And if that's not working, maybe getting the church involved. And at the end, he says to treat the person, if they haven't come back from their sin, to treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. And they sound like pretty strong words. But it's important to notice something that we don't pick up in the English translation is that the you in verse 17 is singular. singular. When it says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. The you is singular. This is an interpersonal issue. This isn't an issue of church excommunication, kicking them out of the complete congregation, having nothing to do with the church. No, this is an issue between two people. And remember here, when Jesus says, treat them as a pagan or a tax collector, there's definitely a sense of distancing yourself from someone. But remember also how Jesus treated the pagans and the tax collectors. Did not Jesus still love the pagans and the tax collectors? Is not Matthew who's writing this gospel, was not he a tax collector when he met Jesus? So be sure that there's a place for distancing yourself from someone's sin in this community. In church communities, it's good to deal with sin. And if sin isn't dealt with, to distance yourself from someone who is causing sin so that you don't stumble yourself. But that doesn't mean that we don't stop loving people. That we don't stop seeking their renewal. All this is about is trying to seek someone and see them won over and brought back to Jesus. Because as we do this, we kind of reflect the realities of heaven. And that's kind of what 18 to 20 kind of talks about. Now, there's quite a bit in there. We won't have time to get to the depths of it. But there's a sense in which there should be a correlation between the way that we uh, live and the way that we see God and serve God. Uh, there's a way that the realities of heaven should be lived out on this earth. Uh, a reality where sin is serious and has serious consequences, but also where sin can be dealt with. There's these correlations between uh, heaven and earth in this, in this whole chapter. And probably the biggest correlation we see um, is in the last section of the chapter. It's a correlation between the way we should forgive. Jesus ends the chapter, and Matthew ends the chapter, um, by retelling the story of this well-known parable. We just had it on the video, so well explained to us, so I shouldn't have to uh, read it through too much. But we see that a kingdom community, the one that Jesus is building here, it needs to be shaped by forgiveness at the core. See, Peter comes to Jesus, and he wants to know how much forgiveness he should offer his brother or sister. In this new way of living, in this new kingdom that you're building, Jesus, what does forgiveness look like? How often should I forgive somebody? Maybe seven times. That sounds pretty generous. And Jesus' response sounds a bit funny. He says, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Or in your footnote, you might see 70 times seven. What's he getting at? But if we try to do the maths or work out the numbers, we're doing the same thing that Peter was doing. We're trying to work out a number that we can then use to say, okay, that's enough forgiveness in this new kingdom. That's how many chances someone has until I give up. But Jesus, again, points to the heart of the issue here, and he does it by pointing to God's heart. He points to the heart and says, you need to forgive because do you know how much you've been forgiven? And he does it by telling the well-known story 
that we heard in the video. There's a man who owes a king a massive debt. He owes him 10,000 bags of gold or 10,000 talents. Talents was a Greek measurement. In the video it said he owed him $1 million. It's actually a bit more than that. If you do the maths, a talent is worth about 20 years wages. This guy owes 10,000 talents, so 10,000 amounts of 20 years worth of wages, which kind of works out probably around $3.5 billion today. He's in a lot of debt, this guy, and he knows it. And he says to the king, please have mercy on me, I'll pay it back. But we all kind of know, how are you going to pay back a $3.5 billion debt? And then the amazing part of the story comes where the master, the king, cancels the debt and lets him go. What an amazing act of grace he is shown by the king. And this servant goes out filled with joy, but he finds a servant who owes him 100 silver coins or denarii. Now, if you do the maths on that, it's probably about 16 grand, which is still a significant uh, thing to owe somebody, but a debt that's worth paying back and able to be paid back, I would imagine. But the servant who's just received such grace from the king demands that this man pay it back. And then we see that the servant uses exactly the same language that the other servant did to the king earlier on in the story. He pleads for mercy. He tells him, just give me time, I'll be able to pay it back, just the same way that the first servant did to the king. But this servant doesn't respond like the king. He tells the servant, uh, he gets the servant arrested and he has him thrown into prison until he can pay back what he is owed. And then in verse 35, we read, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now Peter's question at the start is, looking for an excuse not to forgive, isn't it? Peter wants to know, at what point is enough forgiveness enough and then I don't have to forgive anymore? But Jesus says, stop looking for excuses not to forgive people, Peter. You shouldn't be looking for reasons to forgive, but look to the reason that you have been forgiven. You should forgive because you've been forgiven more than you could ever forgive anyone else. Now, I want to say a few things about forgiveness here. The first thing we see, and the first thing that I think is important, is that forgiveness is a heart issue. Jesus says that you need to forgive people from your heart. So it's no good to just say the words and not believe it in your heart. To be like a kid that when they do something wrong says, sorry. No, we need to believe it deep down in our heart when we forgive somebody. And that's hard and that can take time. But it's no good to just say the words and not believe it in your heart, Jesus says. The second thing is that forgiveness is a deeply relational thing. It's about restoring relationship. So I think sometimes we can do the other thing and we can forgive someone in our heart and never actually tell them that we've forgiven them or bring it up. I don't think forgiveness, and take this with, this is not always, but I don't think forgiveness should be done from a distance. 
I don't think it's something you should be, that should be done back at home after you've had an issue and then moved on from and never spoken about again. I think forgiveness has to be done through relationship, telling somebody you're sorry and telling somebody that they're forgiven. And the third thing is that, that forgiveness is two-sided. It's not just a matter of one party saying you're forgiven without the other party knowing. No, it's a two-sided thing. We need to be willing to forgive people, but we also need to be willing to confess our sins and ask for forgiveness. And the important thing to know is that there are times when this can't happen. There's times when forgiveness can't be like that because there's been abuse or deep sin that has caused people to be distanced or maybe unrepentant sin. But in this new community that Jesus is building, he wants to, to centre their lives and shape the community by this attitude of forgiveness, of relational forgiveness, of deep Deeply relational forgiveness. A good diagnostic tool that I was asked at college um, when we talked about forgiveness was when was the last time you said the words, I forgive you to someone? And I think that struck me because it actually had been quite a while. Or when have you heard someone say to you, I forgive you, Nathan? So I think if we do this well, we should be saying that pretty regularly. Because we sin, we make mistakes, we rack up debt with people, like the people that racked up debt in this story. We do wrong things and we need to be willing to come and ask for forgiveness and we need to be willing to offer forgiveness to people who um, ask for it. So Jesus wants his kingdom community to be shaped by this forgiveness to understand how much they've been forgiven so that they can forgive others because of what they've been forgiven. So that's it. I know that's a lot. It might have felt like drinking from a fire hose. But Jesus has a lot to say about this new kingdom community. Um, and I want us to just notice a couple of things as we finish. Um, as we reflect on the fact that we are part of this community here at church, at Salt. Um, if you're a Christian and you follow Jesus, you are a part of this community. The first thing I want you to notice is that this kingdom community, the only way this can happen is through deep relationship. This kingdom community that Jesus is building is a deeply relational one. And I want to say that I think at church here at Salt, we do a great job of relationship. I've been really encouraged by how deeply we do life with one another, encourage one another, we greet newcomers, but the danger is that we're growing as a church. Um, it's awesome to see a bunch of new people here today and a big welcome to you. But we are continuing to grow in size and it can, be, it can mean that um, relationship can be more difficult as the church grows and we get bigger and there's more people to get to know. So keep thinking about how we can continue as a church to be deeply relational. Uh, a great way to do that is uh, through a salt group uh, or just even a supper after church. But we need to work hard at being relational if we're going to live the way that Jesus talks here. You can't do these things from a distance. You can't do them outside of relationship. So that's the first thing I want us to reflect on and think about. The second is obviously this kingdom community is centred on Jesus. Like Gary opened, there was a community that he's a part of at Ocean Club and there's something they have in common. 
Uh, they're all over 55, 60? 50, sorry. <laughs> There's lots of communities out there that are, are together for a reason. There's something at the center of them. Maybe it's their age, maybe it's their interests. But for us as followers of Jesus, at the center of our kingdom community is our King Jesus. That's what we have in common. That's why we come here and hear Jesus speak these words to us. And that's why we follow him. It was Jesus who preached and taught throughout Galilee and built the community in Matthew. And it's Jesus who continues to build the community of his followers here at Salt, Bonnie Hills and Lake Cadai. So as we think about this passage and try to apply it to our lives, if we have conflict or sin that's difficult and we're struggling, I encourage us all to turn to Jesus as our example and as the one who took away the sin that we have so that we can freely live with him with one another. We need to keep Jesus at the centre of our kingdom, our kingdom community. Well, I think I've taken enough of your time, uh, so I'm going to pray, um, and then the musos are going to come up and sing. Would you pray with me? Uh, king Jesus, we thank you for being our king and for being such a loving and caring king. Uh, thank you for your words in scripture that inform us and challenge us. Lord, we pray that we can serve you faithfully here at Salt as your kingdom community. We thank you for the way that you've been spreading your word and your kingdom throughout the world and we pray that you continue to do that. And Lord, help us to be a part of that kingdom here. Help us to spread the word and to live in light of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.